If you have a Bible and would open up to Malachi chapter 3, I will begin reading in verse 13 and we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 4. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is a vain thing to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and he heard them and a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. On the week of his crucifixion, right around the middle of the week, Jesus sat upon the Mount of Olives with his disciples, overlooking the holy city of Jerusalem. And as they watched the the sun set over the city, Jesus spoke to his disciples of the approaching destruction of the city and of his coming at the end of the age. And in the course of what has become known as the Olivet Discourse, or the Discourse on the Mount of Olives that is recorded for us in Matthew 24 and 25, it is at times difficult to tell whether Jesus has reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, that last great act of judgment upon a faithless nation for her rejection of her coming King, that destruction that occurred in A.D. 70, Or whether he has reference to his return in power and great glory to bring final salvation to his people and final judgment upon the world at the end of the age. But regardless of the point of reference, the point of the discourse is the same throughout. Matthew 24, verses 44 to 51, Therefore, you also be ready. First Baptist Nixa, be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. He'll give him the whole kingdom. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, then the master of the servant will come on a day that he does not expect and in an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and cast him out with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Being found a faithful and wise servant at the coming of Christ on the last day requires that we be as informed as possible as to the events surrounding the day of His coming and the trials and tribulations which are promised us before He comes. Next week, we're going to launch into a study of the book of Revelation, the entire point of which is to prepare the church to faithfully endure that time of tribulation in the sure and the certain hope of Christ's return and His final victory over sin and over death and over hell. And as we'll begin to see next week from the book of Revelation, this book is an exposition and a reinterpretation of numerous Old Testament themes such that it is impossible to accurately understand the message of the book of Revelation apart from its Old Testament foundation, even as it is impossible to understand the Old Testament apart from its New Testament exposition. And one of those Old Testament themes that is just woven all the way through the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation is that of the day of the Lord. And one of the many Old Testament texts that the book of Revelation will pick up and begin to exposit for us in in its pages is this text to which we come today, the very last oracle in the book of Malachi. Four times in this passage, 317, 41, 43, and 45, the Lord speaks of a coming day. A day of salvation and a day of judgment. And His purpose in revealing This coming day is the same as was Jesus' purpose when He gathered His disciples together and spoke of the judgment upon Jerusalem and of His coming on the last day. The purpose is this. For the people of Israel in 5th century B.C. when God sent Malachi to them and for the people of 1st Baptist Nixa today in the 21st century A.D. It is to prepare a people for His appearing. That we may be ready, that we may be found faithful and wise servants at the coming of our Lord on the last day. That's the purpose of this text. This text was revealed and is preached to you today in order that you would be ready, prepared, and found faithful and wise when the King comes back. Now, over the next year, we will have much to say regarding the day of the Lord. We're not going to scratch the surface of it today. Today, we're going to confine ourselves to four truths that the Lord revealed through Malachi concerning what he calls the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Truth number one, the day of the Lord will arrive in two phases. Two phases. Now, as I stated, the day of the Lord is a frequent theme among the prophets. It refers to a cataclysmic event of redemptive history in which the Lord injects Himself into time and into history and into the events of people and nations in order to act in salvation and in judgment. 
For instance, the prophet Joel, in Joel chapter 2, he referred to the impending invasion of Babylon upon Israel and of the resulting destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in 586 B.C. He said, that's the day of the Lord, Joel 2.11. In fact, every day, of the Lord's salvation or judgment that has occurred throughout redemptive history is a kind of foreshadowing of what Malachi here calls the great and awesome day or the great and dreadful day or if you're in some versions, the great and terrible day of the Lord. So we've had, we've had several shadows and types of the day of the Lord that have occurred throughout redemptive history. The destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. at the hand of the Babylonians. The destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 A.D. at the hand of the Romans. And those are foreshadowings of the great day of the Lord that is to come. But this great and climactic day of the Lord that is spoken of by the prophets, it occurs in two phases because the messianic king who inaugurates the day of the Lord, he comes not once but twice. Now the preeminent passage that that speaks of the day of the Lord is found in the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32 and I want to read them for you, they'll be up on the screen behind me. The Lord said through the prophet Joel, around 600 B.C., and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now the reason why this passage is so important to our understanding of the day of the Lord is because it is quoted on no less than three separate occasions at very significant points in the New Testament. For instance, it is quoted by Jesus when he's up on the Mount of Olives surrounded by his disciples and is talking about the day of his return. In what is a clear reference to the second coming of Christ, Jesus says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and here he quotes from Joel 2.31, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the sound of a trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the four corners of the earth from one end of heaven to the other. But Peter, just five weeks after Jesus takes Joel 2.31, and applies it to his second coming, Peter quotes from Joel 2.28-32 in its entirety on the day of Pentecost in order to explain the strange phenomena that that, that the crowds are witnessing around them. You remember? The tongues of fire come down, and the church that was gathered in the upper room, they're all speaking with tongues, and they're prophesying, and people are hearing the great works of God being displayed in their own language. Peter essentially 
quotes from Joel 2.28-32, that passage I just read, and says what Joel was talking about then, 600 years ago, that's what you are seeing here. These men are not drunk as you suppose, it's only 9 in the morning. Rather, the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them and they are prophesying. And then he talks of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all flesh. The sons and daughters of God are prophesying. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he proceeds immediately to declare to them what name this is upon which they should call. They should call, he says, on Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of godless men. But God raised him up again, loosing him from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by its power. And then having declared the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Israel's Messiah, Peter concludes, Therefore let all the house of Israel know that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. So according to the Apostle Peter, not five weeks after Jesus quoted the same passage in reference to his second coming, according to Peter, the first coming of Christ, in particular his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outpouring of his spirit was the day of the Lord. That day when the gates of heaven were flung open and whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul concurred with Peter's interpretation. For in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, he again quotes from Joel 2.32, for whosoever will be called on the name of the Lord will be saved in a clear reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So So what are we to make of of all of this day of the Lord talk in the Old and the New Testament? What are we to make of the fact that according to Peter and Paul, the day of the Lord has already arrived in the first coming of Christ, in His life, death, resurrection, and the pouring forth of His Spirit upon all flesh? Yet according to Jesus, the day of the Lord will arrive at His second coming When the Son of Man descends on the clouds of heaven and He sends forth His angel to gather His elect from one end of heaven to the other. Who's right? Peter and Paul or or Jesus? Has the day of the Lord already come or is the day of the Lord yet to come? The answer is yes. The day of the Lord arrives in two phases. Salvation and judgment were inaugurated or begun at Christ's first coming and will be consummated or fulfilled at His second coming. And in a very real sense, let me throw another, another little cog in the, uh, in the wheel. In a very real sense, the entire time between Christ's first coming and His second coming is the day of the Lord. When whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all those who call. Understanding this two-phase arrival of the day of the Lord is crucial to understanding the prophetic witness to Jesus. 
when the prophets speak of the coming day of the Lord, we need to figure out, do they have reference to his first coming or to his second coming or to, or to some combination of the two? And if we can't line that out, we're going to go horribly wrong in interpreting the prophets. And if we interpret the prophets wrong, we're going to go horribly wrong starting next week when we interpret Revelation. So a lot rides on you getting this first point. This is not merely academic, and I'm going to show you why here in a bit. Now the question is, can we see these two phases of the day of the Lord here in the text of Malachi? And I would tell you, yes, we can. Two weeks ago, I preached from Malachi 2.17 to 3.5. And in that passage, the Lord, all caps, promised that the Lord, that is Adonai, would come suddenly into his temple... And his arrival would be preceded by a messenger who would prepare the way for his coming, which we saw was John the Baptist. And that when he arrives, he will sit like a refiner's fire, and he will purify for himself a people who will worship him in righteousness. Which sounds to me a lot like Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4, where he says that God is, is seeking those worshipers who do not worship him on this mountain or that mountain, but who worship him in spirit and truth for such worshipers the Father seeks. So I think... That 217 to 35 has primary reference to the first coming of Jesus. When Jesus came to purify, that is to save and to sanctify a people for God's own possession. That is phase one of the day of the Lord. But in today's passage, 3.13 to 4.6, the overwhelming emphasis is upon the judgment which Christ will bring at his second coming. That will be a day when the righteous, he says, 3.18, are visibly distinguished from the wicked. Think of the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. It will be a day, 4.1, of burning when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will be reduced to stubble for they shall be set ablaze. It will be a day, Malachi 4.2, when the righteous will enter into the joy of their everlasting inheritance. A day when they will triumph over the wicked, 4-2 and 4-3. All of those images seem to fit better with the second coming of Christ, which is phase two of the day of the Lord. So let's wrap this all together. So the day of the Lord has already dawned when the Son of Man appeared When the Lord came suddenly into his temple, when by his death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of his spirit, Jesus sanctified and is still sanctifying to himself a people, purifying them that they might offer worship in righteousness. And the day of the Lord is yet to dawn in all of its glory when Christ will return to make up his treasured possession and to spare the sons of God, Malachi 3.17, to distinguish the righteous from the wicked, 3.18, to set the wicked ablaze, 4.1, and to usher the righteous into everlasting joy, 4.2. And we, First Baptist Nixa, we live in this era between the days. Between phase one and phase two, between the inauguration and the consummation. And in this time between the times, we have the Holy Spirit poured out upon us as the seal of our inheritance and the assurance that we both have been saved and we will infallibly be saved. 
So number one, the day of the Lord comes in not one, but two phases. Second truth we can learn that will help us to be found faithful and wise on the day of His coming is that the day of the Lord is preceded by a tribulation. Now let me try and explain this and yet not explain it all at the same time. As we're preparing, as I said, to enter into an in-depth study of Revelation, my purpose this morning is not to delve into the details of what is called biblical eschatology. You're going to hear that word a lot, you might might as well learn it. It refers to end times, the study of the end times, eschatology. I'm not going to get into all of those details today. We'll get to that in due time. But what I do want to show my cards just a little bit this morning. When you hear me talk about tribulation, both today and for the next year, and pretty much until Jesus comes back, I'm not talking about the same thing that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins are talking about in their uber-popular Left Behind books. You need to know that. You will come to find that, that I reject much of their end times understanding, their eschatological construct as being unbiblical. So, so if, if you have left behind on your desk and you're reading that in preparation for the book of Revelation, it will prepare you by giving you an understanding of pretty much exactly what I'm not going to say. I believe as did Jesus and Paul before me, that this entire age between the first and second comings of Christ is marked by tribulation, often severe and sometimes deadly. When Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, John 16, he wasn't merely speaking of some distant seven-year period, which according to Tim LaHaye, the church doesn't even go through anyway. He was speaking to his disciples, all but one of whom were violently martyred for their testimony to Christ. When when Paul said to the churches of Galatia, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22, he wasn't speaking of some raptured church in the distant future. He was speaking to the churches of Galatia, circa AD 48, that were going severe persecution. When Jesus told the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He meant that the tribulation was not going to happen in some distant seven-year future, uh, 2,000 years after they were dead and gone. He meant like maybe next Thursday the devil's going to throw many of you into prison. The point is, is that this entire age between the first coming and the second coming, phase one and phase two, is marked by tribulation and the church is called to endure that tribulation as we await the coming day of the Lord and that we overcome today in the same way in which the church has always endured through tribulation. That is, through the blood of the Lamb, through the word of their testimony and that they love not their life even when faced with death, Revelation 12, 11, which is going to be a banner over our study of Revelation. The whole purpose is that we would be those who overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and because we love Jesus more than we love this present life. This tribulation that has been going since Jesus ascended and will continue until Jesus descends 
It will indeed intensify both in its scale and in its severity as the end draws near, but perseverance through tribulation is precisely what characterizes the church throughout this age as we await the day of the Lord. Now let me tell you where I see tribulation in this passage. It is underneath all of the accusations that the people of Israel make against God in verses 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And here's what they were saying. It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking around as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. And evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Why are they saying stuff like that? What, what, what is the reason for their grumbling? Why are they considering it vanity to serve God? Why do they consider it to be utterly without profit to keep His charge? Why, why do they walk like in walking with God as walking around in mourning? It's like, it's like the people of God are in a perpetual funeral. It's because they're, they're suffering. They're enduring tribulation. The arrogant appear to be prospering. They're blessed. Everything is well with the evildoers, and yet the people of God are suffering drought, Malachi 3.10. A plague of locusts are eating all of their crops, Malachi 3.11. They're languishing under Persian domination, Malachi 1.8. One commentator said that the righteous are going around unrewarded, while the wicked are going around unpunished. And it's grating on them. There was a delay in the Lord's coming. They thought when we come back from exile, the Lord's going to come and all of His good promises are going to come to pass and didn't happen. There was a delay and during the course of that delay, during the tribulation that marked that delay, their faith in the promises of God was being stretched to the breaking point and they were not persevering to the end. Was this not exactly the same attitude that Jesus warned against in the parable of the wicked servant? The master was delayed in returning. And so the wicked servant grew impatient. And then faithless. And then downright evil. The Bible speaks repeatedly of there being a delay prior to the coming day of the Lord. A delay that is marked by suffering and affliction and tribulation and persecution. And then it always comes back and says, but it is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. You cannot, you will not be a faithful servant without also being a wise servant. And part of being a wise servant is knowing that it's coming. Tribulation is coming. Affliction is coming prior to the return of Christ. Cancer, it's coming. Job loss, it's coming. The tragic loss of a family member, it's coming. Hard times, they are coming. But do not be surprised at the fiery trial that is coming upon you. Know that we have been destined for this, says Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3. Why? What is God's purpose in putting His people through tribulation prior to His arrival? It's this. 
Tribulation reveals the presence or absence of genuine faith. And God sends tribulation upon His people that His people may be purified and refined and strengthened and that the faithless and the fake may be revealed for what they are. And that God may be glorified in the persevering faith of a people who treasure Him more than they treasure health and wealth and life. So the day of the Lord comes in two phases. That entire period between the phase one and phase two is marked by tribulation. Number three, the day of the Lord will be heralded by a prophet. We've seen this already in Malachi 3.1, right? Phase one of the day of the Lord was heralded by a prophet. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. At the first coming of Christ, right? Phase one of the day of the Lord... John the Baptist was sent ahead to herald the Lord's coming, to prepare the way before him by calling God's people to repentance and to faith, by letting them know that the coming of their king was imminent and that they needed to repent and to prepare. Well, today's passage also speaks of a prophet, doesn't it? Whom the Lord will send ahead of the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What does that mean? Does that mean that Elijah the prophet is going to return to earth and continue his prophetic ministry to herald the coming day of the Lord? And after all, he never died, right? He was translated up to heaven in a whirlwind and in chariots of fire. 2 Kings 2. I don't think it's what this means. I think it means that a prophet like Elijah, as the angel said in Luke 1.17, when he spoke of John the Baptist, there's a prophet coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was like Elijah, fulfilling Elijah's role of preparing the people by calling them to repentance. One like Elijah will appear to herald the, the Lord's coming to prepare the Lord's people by calling them to repentance and faith. At Jesus' first coming, phase one of the day of the Lord, that prophet was John the Baptist. As Jesus himself testified, Matthew chapter 11, he says, all of the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. So Jesus says, Elijah, Malachi 4, 5, that's John the Baptist. But that only has reference to phase 1. What about phase 2? Second coming, which seems to be primarily in mind here in Malachi 4. The Lord says there will also come a prophet to herald Christ's return on the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Revelation 11. Two witnesses. John sees a vision of, of the very same thing that Malachi is prophesying. He says, I saw two witnesses and they will prophesy powerfully for 1,260 days until the beast arises out of the abyss in order to kill them. The witnesses will lay dead in the street for a time until God raises them from the dead and translates them into heaven. Again, I'll explain Revelation 11 when we get there. For now, I just want you to tell you that I think, I think those two witnesses represent the faithful church. That's why God sent the Holy Spirit upon them. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, and they will prophesy. Your sons and your daughters will do what? They will prophesy. 
testifying with great power and authority to the coming of Christ, even in the midst of horrific persecution. We, the church, herald the coming day of the Lord, and we seek to prepare a people for His arrival by proclaiming repentance, by turning the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. That's all covenantal repentance, Old Testament language. And we do so, we herald the coming of Christ before a a watching world, calling them to repentance until the beast arises in order to silence us. And just when it appears that he has won the victory, we will be raised in the sight of all people unto everlasting glory. That's how I interpret Revelation 11. So if we would be wise and faithful servants as we await the Lord's return, we need to give ourselves to the task of preparation and proclamation. We need to give ourselves to the task of proclaiming His imminent return and preparing a people for His coming by calling them to repentance and faith. In other words, faithful and wise servants spend their time before the Master's coming giving themselves to the great task of global missions. Fourth truth. The day of the Lord is a day of final salvation and of final judgment. And whether we experience the one or the other depends upon whether or not we persevere in faith through the tribulation to the very end. There are two groups of people in view in this passage. There's the righteous and the wicked, but we need to take great care with how we interpret those two groups. Often when the Bible speaks of the coming judgment, it just takes for granted. It assumes that God is going to judge the pagan world, and that's what it's doing here. The righteous and the wicked, the arrogant and the evildoers that judgment is going to come upon, those are the same arrogant and evildoers back up in verse 15 who were grumbling against the Lord. In other words, they're Israelites. They're within the covenant people of God, the visible people of God. The wicked are those within the covenant community who were grumbling during the delay in the Lord's coming, during that period of tribulation, Eventually coming to the conclusion that God is unjust and unrighteous and that it is vanity to serve Him because the arrogant and the evildoers fare better in this age than do the faithful. But on the day of the Lord, He says, I'm going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the wheat and the tares, between the sheep and the goats, between the true Christians and the fake Christians, between the genuine and the counterfeit. It's all going to be clear on the day of my coming. There aren't going to be any grumblers leaping with joy into the kingdom. Because grumbling through the affliction and tribulation is not perseverance. The fires of affliction and tribulation will reveal the presence or the absence of true faith. And the fate of the faithless is not good. Hear it this morning. The fate of the faithless of the apostate is burning. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Therefore, let everyone examine himself to see whether he be in the faith. Because there's coming a day when many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never, ever knew you. 
fate of the righteous will be glorious. For them, the day of the Lord is a day of salvation, a day when Christ comes on the clouds with power and great glory to gather his elect from the four winds of the earth. Malachi says the same son of righteousness which rises to set the wicked ablaze rises with healing in its wings for all of the righteous. Maybe it's the influence of Charles Wesley, but I can't help but see Malachi 4.2 as a reference to Christ. We sing about it every Christmas. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in, he, in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. This is Jesus. The day of the Lord is now. And not yet. When Christ came into the world the first time, it was like the sun rising into the darkness, bringing light and life to men, but the darkness did not comprehend it. And when Christ returns the second time, it will be like the sun rising again, only this time he will rise with unveiled brilliance. And what was seen by Peter and James and John, just a glimpse and for a moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, will be seen by all flesh. For he will shine like the sun. The wicked and the unbelieving will be consumed in his fire. The righteous, the faithful, the persevering will be healed and purified and glorified in the radiance of his glory. Sin and suffering and death will be no more. And the people of God will be, will be raised in triumph and glory and we will leap forth from our graves like calves from the stall into the joy of the new heavens and the new earth. Treading, it says, Malachi 4.3, upon the ashes of the wicked. Which makes us a little uncomfortable, but I would, I would suggest to you that we're a little uncomfortable with treading on the ashes of the wicked because we've spent the entirety of our Christian life living in relative comfort. Think what a comfort Malachi 4.3 would be if, if your family members or yourself are getting your heads lopped off on the beaches of Libya or the deserts of Syria. For them it's good news that you will tread on the ashes of the wicked. God will come in righteousness to vindicate his servants on that day. Let me close with one final thought. It comes from verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before them and those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. The faithful, those who feared the Lord, they, they spoke with one another. What did they say? Well, they reminded one another of God's covenant promises. They reminded one another that no matter, no matter how things look in this age of tribulation, God God does pay attention. He does hear the cries of His suffering children. Their names are eternally written in His book and are remembered by Him. And that no matter what tribulation or affliction or suffering or persecution that they encounter, no matter how much they are called upon to endure, no matter how much the wicked prosper and the evil appear to be blessed, there will be a day when the Lord of hosts will make up His treasured possessions and He will spare His Son like a man spares the son who serves him. 
See, we need to be reminded of that so that we can remember it because there is going to become times when, when it hurts Tribulation hurts, and we don't see clearly, and we're, we're, we need to get outside of our own minds, and we need somebody to say to us, to speak to us, God is not absent. He is here, and he will be faithful to his promise. You endure. You persevere. You remain faithful. You will make it by God's grace and power, and we need to speak to one another. They spoke to one another. And so should we. If we would be found faithful and wise servants at the coming of Christ, we must discern the times. We must know that the day of the Lord has come, is coming, and now is. These are the last days. We must know that we have been destined for tribulation before the coming day of the Lord, and that only those who persevere to the end will be saved. We must know that the coming day will be heralded by a prophet, and this was the very reason why the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all the sons and daughters of the King. We must give ourselves to the task of proclamation and preparation, proclaiming the imminent arrival of Christ and preparing a people to meet Him through repentance and faith. And we must know that the day is dawning. That the son of righteousness will rise, the wicked will be consumed in fire, but the righteous will be healed. And the difference between the one and the other is a persevering faith that is continually stoked through the ministry of a local church as we consider how we may stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another, encouraging one another, speaking to one another, and all the more as the day draws near. What you have done for these two and a half hours this morning is, is contribute to each other's perseverance in the faith and everlasting salvation. That's what we do on Sunday mornings in Connect. That's what we do right here. We train one another to be faithful and wise servants. That's why we deal in small group discussion. That's why we worship one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's why I come preaching the word of the Lord to you and telling you that the day is coming and that tribulation is now. We're speaking to one another so that when Christ arrives, that great and dreadful day of the Lord will be in the group that leaps forth from the graves with great joy like cattle from the stall. Our Father, my task this morning has been to prepare a people to meet you. And that will be my task next week and the week after and the week after that and every week until you return. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will take the truth that has just been preached and will impress it upon the hearts of your servants. That the unbelieving, those who know themselves to be counterfeit, those who know themselves to be fake, those who make no claim to Christ at all, would weep in repentance and would fall down before the Son of Righteousness and ask to be bathed in light and grace and atonement. If that's you, you call upon the name of Christ and you do so now so that your name will be called on the day of the resurrection of the righteous. For the rest of us, 
Just keep packing this truth away. Keep packing it away, asking God, begging God, pleading with God to transform you by the renewing of your mind that you would persevere through the tribulation, persevere through the suffering, through the anguish, through the affliction, that you would not grumble, but rather would remain steadfast with a joyful faith in a coming King. I ask this in Christ's name, amen.